Good morning, Center. It's great to be with you. Great to be back with you. Um, some of you, I, I don't know if I've, I've met yet or anything. Uh, so I, it's been a few months since I've been here. My name's Brian. I'm the lead pastor of the Zero Collective, which is the network of churches, a family of uh, four churches um, that we're like center is a part of. And uh, actually, we're preaching through this sermon series together. And for the first time, it's actually going to be five churches that are, that are going to be preaching through this. And so I'm excited to be here with you and kick off this brand new um, sermon series that we're starting. That's going to take us all through the next few weeks, and then it's going to culminate on Christmas services. So December 23rd and 24th, there's like these you know cards that are there in your seat um, that we printed up, and they're actually not for you. Uh, we assume you already are, are know when the Christmas services are. They're actually for you to hand out to someone else who maybe needs to hear the gospel message this Christmas. So, um, so welcome. If you're watching with us online, it's great to have you as well. The series that we're starting today is called Captive Liberator. And essentially, it's, it's kind of like a play on words because Jesus came, and, and what we celebrate in his birth at Christmas time is that he came to liberate captives. He was the captive liberator. In fact, in a passage in Isaiah, Jesus actually said, that's what I came to do. I came to set captives free. But all this month, we're going to be uh, working our way through one of the prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus in Isaiah 53. And it's kind of a play on words because the way Isaiah 53 describes it, the way that Jesus came to liberate us, the way that he came to set us free is that he came as the captive who liberates. So Jesus essentially came and he joined us in our captivity he joined us in the prison cell, the self-made prison cell of our world, of the, of the darkness and the troubles and the world that we live in that can be so dark. And he came because he was the only one who could unlock the door from the inside by living a life here with us as a human being. So that's what we celebrate in Advent, the, the season of preparation leading up to Christmas. That's what we celebrate in who Jesus is. So I'll, I'll get us started um, this morning as we think about how does Jesus liberate us? How does he want to set us free? Um, when my uh, sons were little or when they were younger, uh, our son, Andrew, he's 20 right now. But when he was about seven or eight, there was this one day my wife is at home with our boys and she hears Andrew downstairs and he's like moaning in pain. He's crying and moaning. And so she, you know, she gets the other two kids, you know, situated and she runs downstairs and she goes downstairs and she finds Andrew laying on the ground next to this shattered lamp face up and there is blood all over his face. So as a mother, you can imagine, I mean, this is terrified her, right? And so she gets him up on, on his feet and she's trying to figure out what happened. This unexplained tragic event has happened. And so she had a question, right? What happened? What happened to you? And so Andrew, with blood streaming down his face, begins to tell my wife, Carrie, uh, you know, uh, this story about how he was just laying there on the ground and somehow the lamp jumped off and broke itself on his face, which raised some questions for her. But again, he's got blood pouring down his face. So this isn't the time to debate and argue. So she takes him and she takes him around the corner into the bathroom. She gets a washcloth and she begins to, you know, try to, to wipe the blood off of his face. And as she's doing that, as, she, as she's cleaning the blood off his face, she can't find any cuts. There's no wounds. And so she says to him, Andrew, I can't figure out where the blood is coming from. You, you don't appear to be hurt. And at this moment, Andrew realized he was in trouble and so he just says, man, thanks, mom. I feel so much better. And he just begins to try to like walk out of the room. So she grabs him, pulls him back, sits him down. And finally, the whole story came out. Here's the truth of what happened. Andrew was downstairs and he broke the lamp. He just was messing around. He broke the lamp. But then he realized nobody heard it. No, nobody like came down the stairs, you know, or anything. So 
he came up with this elaborate plan. He went into the bathroom in the drawer where he knew the fake Halloween blood was that was left over. It's like a little tube that looks just like this. And so he gets it out and he just takes it and smears it all over his face, runs over and lays down next to the lamp <laughs> and begins to moan in pain. The whole thing was just a lie. And the whole intention of it was just to distract his mother from the fact that he was guilty, from the fact that he had done something wrong. I tell you that because uh, every single one of us in our lives has walked in on or experienced an unexplained, an unexplained tragic event. Every one of us. In fact, maybe you're walking through an unexplained tragedy right now, a loss that's just come out of nowhere. And I would tell you, around Christmas time, I think we feel the weight of those things. They're, they're more electrified this time of year than they are any other time of year. Uh, maybe it's a cancer diagnosis of a loved one. Uh, this past Monday, I was actually at the hospital visiting a friend of mine who has cancer. Um, maybe, maybe it's a job loss. Without any sort of explanation, maybe the, the job just disappeared and you're left kind of trying to figure it out. Maybe it's a relationship that just ended without any kind of warning. I don't know what it is. Maybe for you, maybe it's a different kind of loss, but, but all of us in our lives have experienced an unexplained tragedy. And, and here's what I would say as we think about Jesus and who he is. Whenever we experience an unexplained tragedy, underneath every unexplained tragedy, I would tell you there is a question that we ask and there is a lie that we're tempted to believe. Every time there's an unexplained tragedy that we walk in on, there's a question that we ask, just like my wife, right? Like, what happened? There's a, there's a question that we ask. And then I would also tell you there's a lie that we tend to believe. So first of all, the question that we ask is the question, why do bad things happen to good people? It's the question of suffering. It's the question that theologians, philosophers, thinkers all throughout the centuries have asked. If God is so good, like we were just singing about a moment ago, if God is so good, why is there suffering? Why am I suffering? Uh, why doesn't God step in and stop it? Why do bad things happen to good people? And I would tell you, if we don't have a good answer to that question when we suffer, when we experience unexplained tragedies, what happens is we begin to either question God's goodness or we question his power. So we either say, wow, you know, apparently if God's powerful, apparently God is not good. Apparently he's allowing this tragedy to happen. And maybe we even turn it and we begin to indict God. Well, God's the one doing this. It's his fault. I, I've watched friends and people I've known over the years, I bet you have too, walk away from their faith completely because of this, because of some unexplained tragedy and they can't answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? God must not be good. He must be doing this to me. Or the other route we go is we begin to question God's power. Well, maybe God's good, but he just has no power. He can't fix any of this. He, maybe he's not real. So, so why bother praying? Why bother, you know, going to church again? Why bother believing for one more second? If, if God, maybe even if he is good, he, he can't do anything. He's not answering these prayers. The question we ask is, why do bad things happen to good people? And we look for an answer to that. So what I want to do in the next couple of minutes, I just want to show you the lie that is embedded in that question. And it's the lie that we all tend to believe, especially when we experience suffering and tragedy. 
And so uh, we're going to go to Romans chapter 3. The writer Paul, he's writing to the church in Rome. And what he's doing here is he's literally just taking a whole bunch of quotes from Old Testament scriptures, mostly from the Psalms and the prophets. In Romans 3, what, what he's doing is he's literally, what he's trying to do here is he's trying to show you, hey, this idea I'm talking about, it's everywhere in scripture. You just see it over and over and over and over again. So he's just quoting scripture after scripture. Verse 10, Paul says, as it is written, quoting all these other scriptures, there is no one righteous not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. You can keep reading through chapter three. He just keeps quoting scripture after scripture, trying to make this point. And what he's doing is he's building up to his main idea, his main thesis. And he finally says it in verse 23. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody has sinned. There's no one righteous, not even one. So if you could go to that next slide. Whenever we have an unexplained tragedy, the question we ask is why do bad things happen to good people? But the lie that we believe is that there is such a thing as good people. What Paul says is none are good except for Christ. And so when we ask that question, it's sort of, there's an assumption embedded into it. Why do bad things happen to innocent, good people? But the lie is that there really isn't anything such as good people. Now, hang on a second before you chuck something at my head here or, or turn off the live stream. Um, I, what I, don't hear something I'm not saying, okay? I'm not saying that I think you deserve whatever tragic event has happened in your life, okay? I don't think you deserved it. But what I'm saying is that our world has been fractured and broken by sin, and we ourselves have been fractured and broken by sin. And so therefore, when something tragic, when something bad happens in our lives, it's not God punishing us for something. It's a byproduct of the sin reality that we live in. And so therefore, we need to take just a second and talk about what do we mean when we say sin? Okay, and I would just tell you, I don't think we really understand what that term is anymore, or what it means, even in the church. Oftentimes, whenever we talk about sin, what we think sin is, is we think it's my own personal bad behavior. It's like my own personal transgressions, my bad behavior, my, my individual bad choices. That's what we think of. Like, oh, I made a mistake. That's what we think of when we hear the word sin. But when the Bible talks about sin, it talks about sin as being much, much, much broader. Sin is actually like the reality that's baked into everything in our world. It's hardwired into everything. Our, the creation itself, Paul says in Romans 8, the creation is groaning, waiting to be redeemed because creation itself is broken by sin. Every relationship that we have, every single relationship we have is tainted by sin, no matter how hard we try. E and even ourselves, our own physical bodies are decaying. Paul calls our, our, our physical bodies a tent, a temporary dwelling, but because we've all been broken by sin, every single one of us. See, we, we think of ourselves and we, thought, we think of our world as, you know, we're mostly good. I'm mostly good. Our world is mostly good. But, you know, there's just these little bits of bad here and there sprinkled in, little bits of sin, almost like an ocean, right? Like a huge ocean with just a few little islands in it. We think, you know, I'm, we're mostly good. Our world's mostly good with these little islands. But the Bible actually says it's the exact reverse of that. Sin is like the ocean. Sin is like this reality that covers everything. But there are these little islands of good. There are these little islands of good choices or good behavior. That's the reality that we're in. And so the problem 
is oftentimes the way that we deal with our world, the way we deal with our reality is we kind of soften the truth about our situation. You know what I mean? We put on some fake Halloween blood and we come up with a story about our own innocence and about, uh, you know, what's happened in our lives. And we have this way we narrate and explain all the tragic events of our lives. And we soften the reality of, of really the world that we live in and ourselves. Um, <laughs> a few Christmases ago, I think it was four Christmases ago, I got a, a Fitbit for Christmas. It was the first time I ever had a, fit, a Fitbit. How many of you ever had like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or anything like that? Yeah, I was so excited because I was like, oh man, I'm going to get so healthy. I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to, because I can now see, you know, how many steps I'm taking. I can see all the exercises I'm doing. And so I was really excited about this. So I put the watch on that first year that I had a Fitbit, I gained 10 pounds. And I, w- I don't, it was crazy. I'm like, how is this happening? I was wearing the watch. I was into Fitbit. I was into fitting every bit of this cake in my mouth, apparently. <laughs> I was literally a few months in, I'm like, well, how is this happening? Here was the problem with the Fitbit. The Fitbit was measuring basically all the good stuff I was doing right? It was measuring all the steps I was taking. Every day I'm like, man, I had more miles today than I did the the day before. I went up more flights of stairs. I burned more calories. So I was feeling really good about myself. But the Fitbit was not measuring all the bad stuff I was doing to undo all the good stuff. In fact, it almost kind of gave me this false sense of reality. I kind of started feeling good about myself. Like, man, I'm really exercising. So late at night, I could just pound more, you know, peanut butter and cookies, I would tell you, by the way, if you struggle uh, with insomnia and you're up late at night, if you're looking for a food that really helps you just stuff the feelings right down, peanut butter. It's wonderful. Just peanut butter just really helps the feelings stuff down so you can go to bed. This is what I was doing. And so that weight didn't come off. I didn't lose those 10 pounds until I finally got honest about all the bad stuff I was doing that wasn't being measured on the, on the Fitbit. We, we kind of create Fitbits for our lives and for our souls And we only look at the good things and we don't get real about the reality of our situation a lot of times. Now, those are, you know, funny examples, but I mean, we do this in really serious ways too. Um, A few months ago, I was talking to my coach. He's he's a counselor and a coach for me. You you should know that, by the way, as as a pastor, I I talk to a counselor. I have have someone in my life and he and I have walked a lot of uh, road together and um, he's somebody that can say just about anything to me. And I I was talking with him because my wife and I, we've been married for, for 24 years, but we were having a real uh, situation in our marriage where things, where she and I were both uh, at odds with each other. And so I was talking to him about it. And so I was using words. I was saying, you know, Carrie and I, we're having a struggle in our marriage. I said, you know, it's, just, this is like a real challenge that we're facing. Those were the words I was using. Uh, you know, this is just a, a really tough situation. I mean, I just kept talking about it like that. And finally, at one point in the conversation, he just stops me. He says, Brian why don't you just call it what it really is? You're sinning. And you're rebelling against what God would call you to be as a husband. And because of your pride and your ego, that's, you just can't, you're not doing what you know you should be doing, and that's what's causing the problems here. And he was right. He was 100% right. That's exactly what was happening. And, and the reason I don't like to use words like sin and rebellion, the reason I would much rather talk about my struggles and my, my challenges and, and those, the tough things and, and use those kind of languages because words like sin, words like rebellion, words like disobedience, those things get way closer to the truth about me. 
that at 45 years old, following Jesus for a couple or three decades now, and, and being a pastor, like I'm supposed to be a good example for all of you and all that kind of stuff, there are still places, I'll just call them unconverted places in my life. Places where I know the thing I should do, I know the right thing to do, and yet I don't do it. I just can't like will myself to do it. I'm not totally free. And the reason I know I can, I can stand up here and say that to you is because you're not either. Every single one of you has the same situation. You have unconverted places in your life. You have, you have places where you know the thing that you should be doing, but there's something in you. It's, it's the addiction. It's the pride. It's the inability to just step forward and do what you know you should be doing. We all have that. None of us are totally free. Some days I feel like my sin is making all the decisions in my life, not me. Now, when we say that and when we get honest about that, the question that comes, especially in our culture today, is, well, isn't that shaming people? In woke culture, you know, whenever you talk about like sin and say, well, people are, you know, it's like an ocean. People are mostly bad. Our world is mostly sinful and broken. When you say that, people will say, well, aren't you, aren't you just shaming people? It's the quickest way in the world you can get yourself canceled is shaming other people, which is funny because that's canceling someone for being canceling anyway. But here's what I would tell you. When you go to the Bible, the way the Bible talks about guilt and shame, guilt and shame are two different things. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Whenever the Bible talks about guilt, oftentimes it's translated into the word iniquity in the Bible. Now, uh, iniquity or guilt is when you feel bad for something that you actually did. Okay, so you, you did something wrong, you know it was wrong, and you feel bad about it. That's guilt, that you should feel bad. Like my son, when he broke the lamp, right? He felt a sense of guilt. That's why he decided to go find the, the Halloween blood because he was trying to deal with that sense of guilt. You should feel guilty when you do something bad. But shame, shame is when that bad thing becomes an identity that we take on and we begin to wear. So it's not just something I did, it's what I am. So follow me, you failed, every single one of us have failed, but you are not a failure. You sinned, Every one of us has sinned, but shame is when we begin to say, my identity for the rest of my life is just, I'm, I'm a sinner. This is just the way I am. This is how it's always going to be. Today is just going to look exactly like tomorrow. Nothing's ever going to get better. And Jesus came to set us free from that. That's not the truth. He, the beautiful thing about what Jesus does is he comes, he doesn't cancel people or shame people, he cancels sin. So how does he do that? How does Isaiah tell us that he's going to do that? In this incredible passage in Isaiah 53, Isaiah is writing 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And he writes, um, in, in the book of Isaiah, he writes these four, they're called the suffering servant songs. And Isaiah 53, this passage is the fourth, and I would say the greatest passage, uh, uh, one of the greatest passages of scripture in the Bible. It's hard to overstate how powerful and how important this passage of scripture is. It's the fourth of the suffering servant songs pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. And here's how it says that Jesus is going to unlock the prison door, how he's going to actually enter in and set us free. Ten times in this passage in Isaiah 53, ten times we're told that he takes something on himself that belongs to us. 
10 times, he's going to take something on himself that belongs to us. And every week of the series, we're going to look at another chunk of this passage. And today we're going to look at verses four through six. And maybe we can just even say, uh, say this together. Surely he took up our pain and bore our Yeah, we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our, he was crushed for our, and the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. Now we read that, and here's the thing about those verses we just read. We love the first part, we don't like the second part. So what it says, what Jesus did is he came and he took our pain and he took our suffering. He he took our unexplained tragedies, these things that happen in our life. We love that part. It's like, yes, Jesus, please, please take my pain, take my suffering. Do something about that. Take my unexplained tragedies. We like that part. But then it says, but he also, as part of the same idea, he also took our transgressions and our iniquities. What's that? Transgressions, when, when the Bible talks about that, transgressions is similar to our word for rebellion. It's when you purposely and willfully choose to go against God, when you choose to, to walk away and go the other direction. And then iniquity, we, are, we already talked about that word. It's guilt. It's our individual guilt for our sin. And so Jesus comes, and, and the way he takes something on himself that belongs to us, he takes our suffering and our pain, and he also takes our transgression and our sin. The next verse says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Just like Paul was saying in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The gospel message is that every single one of us has wandered off. We've all gone astray. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Bad things can't happen to good people because there is no such thing. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and, but the message is that Jesus has taken all our sin and our wrongdoing on himself. In the incarnation, Jesus joined us in our prison cell. He took on flesh and dwelt among us so that he could unlock the prison door from the inside. And our sin and our punishment, our, our prison sentence essentially was transferred to him. And that's how... We've been made free. So what do we do with that? If you're walking through an unexplained tragic situation right now, if you're wrestling through, you know, a sin that you just can't seem to, to put down, an issue that you can't seem to resolve in your life, what do, we, what do we need to know? What are we supposed to do with that information? This is the big idea I hope you walk home with today. Go ahead, if you could, to that next slide. We need to know that we don't have a preventer we have a savior. We don't have a preventer. We have a savior. The problem is what we really want is a preventer. What we pray for, what we ask for is a preventer. We say, God, will you prevent pain and suffering from happening in my life ever again? Some of us become a Christian and we think to ourselves, well, if I, now that I'm a Christian, God, you know, Jesus is going to come into my life and he's going to prevent me from ever sinning again. He's going to prevent me from ever thinking thoughts again that, that are not what I think. But we don't have a preventer. What we have in Jesus is not a preventer. We have a savior. He came not to prevent you from experiencing pain and suffering, not to prevent you from ever sinning again, but to, he came to cancel all of it 
by his death and his resurrection. He paid the price for it. He did something better than just prevent it. He canceled it all. And that's good news. But we have to accept him for who he is. And we can't get mad when he's not a preventer. We have to allow him to be who he is if we want to be rescued, if we want to be saved, if we want to be set free from our own prison cell. He's a savior. Um, One of my most vivid Christmas memories was the Christmas that my grandpa died. I was eight years old, uh, and our family um, lived in Indianapolis at the time. And and growing up, my grandpa is my my dad's dad. He was like in our lives. He was always around. He, He was always at our house and stuff. And so a couple weeks right before Christmas, he shocked all of us. He had a massive heart attack, and he died. And so I remember my parents were just thrown into this whirlwind of trying to figure out, you know, the estate, what are we going to do with that? The funeral, the funeral arrangements, the, you know, all the, the financial situations. And, and I mean, it was just this, all these people coming in. Um, and, and the truth of the matter is with all of that happening right before Christmas, my parents had not decorated the house. They hadn't got, we had no Christmas tree. I remember in the, it's the month of December. It's getting closer and closer to Christmas Eve, Christmas day there. And the truth is my parents, because of all this craziness, um, they hadn't bought any presents yet. And so my mom is, is feeling the weight of this, right? Like we're getting closer and closer. And she's like, we may get to Christmas Day and not even have any presents for the kids. And so I have this memory of uh, we as a family, I remember us coming home from the funeral just a few days before Christmas was my grandpa's funeral. And my parents were just exhausted. And I remember it's night, it's, it's later in the evening we're, and we drive home to our house, we get out of the car we walk up to the front door of our house. We open the door. We flip on the lights. And the whole house is decorated. And there's, and there's a Christmas tree. And it's lit up. And there are presents that are wrapped and, and like overflowing out from underneath the, tr- the Christmas tree. And for my eight-year-old self and my seven-year-old sister and my five-year-old brother at the time, we had an explanation for this, right? Santa! (laughs) Santa came early! Santa, he has rescued us! Oh, Santa, look at this, this is wonderful! But as an adult, I I realized the powerful moment that that must have been for my parents standing in their living room that day, and in fact, the truth of what really happened is much, much better. The truth was, we had a friend and his name was Larry and Larry knew where the key was and so he did this very beautiful thing for us while we were at the funeral in the midst of our mourning and our, our grieving and our loss he let himself into our house and he at his own expense decorated the house put the tree in place bought the presents, wrapped the presents, and set the whole thing up in this incredible act of love for us. My friends, that is Christmas and the incarnation. That's a picture of it. Maybe you're experiencing right now a a tragic loss. Maybe you're walking right now in the midst of a tragic experience. Maybe, Maybe you're right now asking the question, man, how do I even make sense of this? You need to know you have a friend who knows where the key is. 
and the Christmas message is that Jesus let himself in to the midst of our worst pain, our worst nightmare, joined us in our prison cell because he was the only one who had the key. And by he didn't just, at his own expense of his money, but at the expense of his life, he gave himself for us to unlock the door so that we could be set free. That's who Jesus is. John Stott, famous theologian, said, sin is you and me substituting ourselves for God. Salvation is God substituting himself for us. You have a friend and he's got a key. Do you need him today? Do you need him this season? So as we turn this toward ourselves, uh, as we go into prayer here in a moment, I just want to talk to two different groups of people who are maybe here if you're watching online as well. Two different groups of people. The first uh, group of people I want to talk to is maybe right now you're experiencing an unexplained tragedy. You're walking through, or maybe it's a loss that you feel every year this time. And the invitation to you, I would just say, is can you trust him with your pain and suffering? Isaiah 53 says he came to bear our pain and our suffering, but you have to trust him with it. So maybe the question is not why do bad things happen to good people? Maybe your question is why do bad things keep happening to saved people? And the only answer to that question has to be because he has a purpose in it. And he's at work. He's not done yet. Can you trust him? with your pain and your suffering. As we, as we go to prayer this morning, can you surrender that to him? Can you say, Jesus, I need you in this with me because you're the only one who has the key and you, you're the only one who knows what you want to do. Second group of people I want to talk to this morning as we go to prayer is maybe you're wrestling with a transgression and, and an iniquity issue. And so the invitation to you is just, can you own up to your transgressions and iniquities? Maybe you've been, you're calling it, ah, it's a struggle, it's a challenge. Maybe just like my counselor said to me, just call it what it is. Jesus doesn't cancel people, he cancels sin. When we do that, when we own up to him. But Jesus is not gonna cancel sin that we pretend is not there and that we don't need help with. What does it look like for you today to own up to those unconverted places of your life and just come back to the reality that Jesus, I need you. So let's bow together. Jesus, this morning we just stand in awe and we worship the fact that we have a friend. And um, you're the only one who could save us. You're the only one who could pay the price for our penalty. You're the only one who could redeem us. And you did. You did it. And so this morning, uh, we come to you, Jesus, and we just say, Lord, we trust you. In the places where we're asking the questions about why there's pain and suffering, why there's unexplained tragedies, what we need is not a better you know, explanation of our tragedy. No, what we need is not for you to prevent it from ever happening again. What we need is you in it with us. So we trust you. We know that you're working all things together for our good and that you have a purpose and that we can trust your purpose in that. So we entrust ourselves to you. And then God, of the same way, we come to you as, as people all have, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us like sheep have gone astray. And so we just come to you as the great canceler. 
of sin, that you don't cancel us, that you don't cast us aside, but that you literally took our, our sin and our iniquity on, our, on yourself. And so this morning, God, we just call it what it is and we ask you to take it. We ask you to forgive us. We ask you to give us uh, just a greater sense of dependency on you. We just thank you, Jesus, this time of year that we have to remind ourselves again that he's coming and he didn't leave us in our prison cell. He joined us in it. And so God, um, would you just remind us of that this morning? Would you help us even as we carry out of this place today, as we leave this place, God, I pray that we would take the hope and the joy that we know because we've been set free. Would, would we take that freedom into the world we live in that so desperately needs that freedom so that you would use us to be a light in this dark world? Because there's good news. We love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.